702. The Naked Scientist. It's now 22 minutes to uh, 3 o'clock. We've got Dr. Chris Smith. The questions are already lined up for Chris. Your calls right now, 011-883-0702. Hello, Chris. Woohoo! I'm good. You're right. I'm very good. Uh, certainly uh, a few curious ones. Uh, so let's get straight to it. Jacob has been patiently holding 5 minutes, 12 seconds. Hello, Jacob. Thank you for your patience. Hi, Azania. How are you? Very nice good. Talking. And you? Good, thanks. Um, so my, I have two questions. And my first one is last year um, in grade 8 biology, we learned about the different um, types of diets within the animal kingdom. Mm-hmm. And one of those diets was um, om- omnivores. But um, one of the alternative names for omnivores we learned was opportunistic feeders, meaning that they feed, they eat whatever they can find. Yeah. And what I would like to know is, um, does that mean that if uh, due to circumstances such as, I don't know, habitat loss or whatever the case may be, that if there was only vegetation or only meat available, they could survive on either only herbivorous diet or only carnivorous diet if they needed to? Or do they have to have a combination of both to be healthy? Wow, great question. I see it's in two parts. You have a second one as well. Do you want Chris to tackle this one first? Um, yeah, can we do it one at a time? Or yes, let's do that. Stay on the line, Jacob. Hey, Chris? Jacob. Uh, well, an interesting question. And it will really come down to the animal itself. Because if you take a human, for example... If you subjected a human to a very restricted diet, and this does happen, some people live in very poor places, they don't have very good food to access, they eat the same thing day in, day out. And if you eat the same thing day in, day out, and it is uh, deficient in certain nutrients, you ultimately will become deficient in certain nutrients and you will be less healthy. So it's possible that animals that are well adapted to eat a range of different foodstuffs, and a human's a really good example of this, because we can be vegan, we can be vegetarian, we can be omnivorous, we can be carnivorous so you can eat a whole range of different things and be healthy as long as you make sure that what you're eating meets all of your nutritional requirements why do we have nutritional requirements because there are some things we can make in our own bodies there are some things that we can't make and we rely on nature to supply them we tend to call those things micronutrients or essential amino acids vitamins and so on so as long as a diet does have those different micronutrients represented within it inadequate amounts to meet an individual's need if they're a human or any other animal come to that they're going to be absolutely fine on that diet but very often you'll find that if you live in an impoverished environment where you eat the same thing day in day out you will become ultimately deficient in something and that will translate into poorer health but if you can make sure that doesn't happen, and this is what people who switch diets and, and maybe become vegan or become vegetarian, they have to be careful to make sure because of that dietary switch, they're not missing anything. So responsible veganism, responsible vegetarianism, which is not hard to do. You just have to be aware that there's a risk, can make sure that you stay healthy. And it's going to be the same for, for any animal in that situation. Right. Jacob, there you go. Uh, question one done. Oh, what's the second one? Um, so my second question was, if somebody is, um, say, very malnourished or um, even starving, um, if they were, say, slightly overweight or maybe a little bit obese before they went into that situation, would they have a better chance of survival than somebody who wasn't? Because mm-hmm. um, I think I remember learning, I don't remember where, but um, basically when you have no food or nutrients, your body attacks fat before it starts attacking other parts of the body. It stores the fat and then it uses it, much like a camel does with its hump. Uh, Jacob, you're right 
in some respects. The reason that we get fat is because fat is a very energy-dense way of storing excess calories. So if you eat more than you can burn off in a day, your body has to store the energy in a way that's the most convenient and the most stable and takes up the least space. And FLAB does that because when you turn any kind of calories you take into your body into fat, what you've done is to break it down into individual bits of carbon, so two carbon atoms stuck together, and then you build those up to make long chains, which are the fatty acids, which you then assemble to make fat in your adipose tissue. It's got enormous amounts of energy stored in there, so a flabby person would certainly have more energy to fall back on in a starvation situation than someone who's thin to start with. But there is a big but here. There are some things that your body needs, as we've just been talking about, which are essential to the healthy operation of your body, which you have to either eat or, if you're not eating them, your body doesn't burn off calories and live on calories alone. It needs these essential elements. It will rob them from other tissues. So if you put yourself into starvation mode and a, and a person who's thinking, I'm too fat, I'm going to lose weight, I'll just eat nothing. Yes, you will lose weight. But because there is this demand for some other essentials and some things, you can't, for instance, make sugars from what's in your fat very easily anyway. So you rob your muscle tissue. You can take amino acids from the proteins in your muscles and you use those to make the sugars that you need. So if you don't do any exercise, then as a result, you will start to dip into not just your fat, you will also dip into your muscle. And if you dip into your muscle, you'll lose your lean tissue, you will lose your strength, but also your metabolic rate will plummet because muscle is what accounts for most of the burning of your calories. And so if you want to lose weight... And I know this is not a weight loss question, but if you wanted to lose weight, the best way to do it is definitely to cut your calorie intake, but increase and maintain exercise because that maintains the lean tissue, the muscles, and stops you from eroding your muscles down because of inactivity and turning them into food for other bits of your body. So mm. in a nutshell, the answer is yes, a flabby person will have more energy to fall back on. They will nevertheless still end up losing muscle mass and being bad for their body if they go into complete starvation because there are some things that you can't make. Some of those essential amino acids, you're not going to get those from fat. You have to dip into your muscles to do that. So cutting calories by a reasonable amount, eating enough of the micronutrients in order to make sure you're not deficient in them. But surviving like that, if you did that, then a fat person would definitely last for much longer than a thin person. Wow. Jacob? Very much. Thank you. Thanks for those two great questions. If only we could burn the fat first before we got to the muscle. If <laughs> yes, it's so much energy you don't realise how much energy is locked away in flab and until yeah. the day you want to get rid of it. And then you think, yes. oh, my goodness, th this takes a while, doesn't it? There's how much sort of metabolic activity is there in, in that extra inch around your middle? And the answer is a huge amount of energy locked up in there. Mm. Next, we go to Joe, calling us from Kilani. Hi, Joe. Uh, hello, Isenia. Uh, hello, Dr. Smith. I'd want to, with regard to the COVID virus, mm -hmm. what is the value of uh, serological or blood tests in the diagnosis of a COVID infection. Hi, Joe. Good quality yeah. test. Yeah, there's, um, there's two things to consider here because when we're talking about serology, serology is the study of serum, which is the plasma in the bloodstream. For some infections, and in some cases coronaviruses, 
the virus itself is in the serum so you can look for the antigen from the virus which is there and that tells you whether or not you've got it but more normally and certainly in the case of coronavirus infections what people are referring to when they say serology is the other thing which is present in blood plasma and this is antibodies antibodies are molecules that your immune system makes when it meets greets and then gets rid of any kind of infection and it leaves these footprints in your immune system the antibodies which wash around in the bloodstream in the short term they're there to help you fight off the infection in the long term they're there to stop you getting it again ideally but also what they do is act as a marker that you have been exposed to that thing in the past and we can therefore tell who's had it and who hasn't had it for a lot of infections but not all because the antibodies don't necessarily persist indefinitely and in some viruses they disappear within a certain period of time and we think coronaviruses are included on that list if you test people who've been infected with various coronaviruses you tend to find that after a couple of years the antibodies that they had made have waned and the levels have dropped away not exclusively so but by and large they often have so in the short term they can serve as a useful marker that someone has been infected in the past in the longer term we can't rely on them to the same degree mm, thank you joe thanks for the call there's joe out in kilani next we've got justin in benmore justin uh yes good afternoon uh chris <laughs> um my question is around um tobacco and cigarette smoking. I wanted to find out, would it be possible in today's time to genetically engineer and grow a type of tobacco that can be used in all cigarettes that would not be a threat to your health, thereby making it safe to smoke your favorite brand of cigarette? Justin, I'm Mm. afraid that uh, to use a smoking analogy... It's something of a pipe dream, this one. And the reason for that is there are a number of things that uh, are in nicotine, sorry, in tobacco that make it attractive to people who want to smoke. One of them is something the plant makes to ward off attack from herbivores, usually insects, and that's nicotine, a plant alkaloid, which is poisonous to those insects. And the plant makes it to stop itself being eaten it happens to stimulate our nervous system in a less toxic way, but it's still a toxic agent, but it's highly addictive. And that's why it gives us a pleasant a pleasant sensation, but then ultimately produces an addiction, which means that you feel awful until you have the drug there and then you feel normal. So it's not an ideal thing to be hooked on. The problem really emerges, though, with the what else is in the plant. And when you smoke anything, and it could be rolled up newspaper or tissue paper, smoke is bad for you and there are various molecules in that smoke which are highly irritant to the cells in your airways not just irritant but they can also some of them directly damage dna so when you smoke you injure the cells lining your airways that injury makes you more likely to have infections in the long term because it paralyzes the cleaning mechanisms of those tissues it damages the cells and makes them keep on repairing themselves which is a risk factor for getting cancer And in some cases, it directly damages the DNA in those cells and can mutate the DNA in a way that leads to cancer. And people thought that vaping might be a step towards making a safer form of smoking. And it's certainly true that it probably does a bit less harm than cigarettes do and might help people to quit smoking. But 
there are lots of case reports of people who've been vaping who've actually continued to get damage to their lungs and in some cases it's massively increased their risk of getting covid symptoms when they catch coronavirus so therefore I don't think that really it's easy to manipulate these plants in a way that would render them non-addictive with safe smoke and actually have anything that anyone who's currently a smoker would want to use, if you know what I mean. So I think probably it would be better to cut our losses and say, if you're a smoker and you want to quit, which 75% of smokers say that they do at any moment in time, but the success rate's only about 10 to 15%, depending on how you do it, um, I would say switch to vaping because there's fewer nasties in there than there are in cigarette smoke and aim to switch down and reduce down your intake so that you can ultimately have a goal of quitting and use vaping to do that but I don't think we're going to find a way of genetically modifying a tobacco plant so that we have safe smoke and low nicotine or no nicotine because even if we did that no one would want to use it. Listen, Chris, a colleague has just walked in. He had to take this opportunity to ask a question. Curious, Sikho is here. <laughs> chameleons? Actually. Chameleons? Yes, because there was a Did video. Did you see some over the weekend? So I saw a, a very interesting video of a chameleon was on a branch. I think it changed colors like almost seven times. Mm-hmm. The one moment it was green, pink, red, whatever. And I thought, how does it know what color to change to? Because apparently it does this to... Um, camouflage, camouflage to hide, to yes. blend in, yes. know, to to blend in so that it's safe. Yes. So can it see a color red and does it identify a color red and says I'm going to change? Uh, or how does it work? Yeah, what's the intelligence in the chameleon, Chris, that allows it to adapt to the colours around it? It is a myth that chameleons do this for disguise purposes. It just so happens that when they're naturally calm, they will blend in quite nicely into their surroundings. But chameleons use their colour-changing abilities, which are driven by a mosaic of what are called chromatophores, which are colour-changing cells in their skin. And those cells are under the control of both the nervous system and also hormones that wash around in the animal's bloodstream. So when the animal's mood changes, its colour changes. And this is because directly signals are sent from its nervous system into some of these chromatophores and also uh, hormones washing around in the bloodstream, which are released, for instance, in response to anxiety. Animals can get scared, for example, they'll produce adrenaline-like chemicals, and these are hormones that go around in the bloodstream. The cells see those, and it makes those cells respond in a certain way. So... In the case of a chameleon, it uses its colour to signal its intentions. It uses it for mating purposes and to attract a mate. It also uses it to signal uh, dominance and uh, territorial information. Hi, this is my territory. I'm big and uh, stronger than you. Don't attack me. Don't come near me. I'm angry. Those kind of things. They're not doing this purely to blend in. When they when they blend in, it's just because a, a calm chameleon is a nice pale green colour and it tends to live in environments where that's its colour anyway. But it's not intentionally seeing something and mirroring the colour directly. Some animals do do that and they have ways of detecting what sort of surface they're on and then they change the behaviour of these chromatophores because other animals have these as well. Things like... Um, Cuttlefish, for example, can do this as well, do it very effectively. They can change their colour. An octopus will do this as well, some squid. So they will change their colours by switching on very similar cells. Um, but, but in their case, they can do it for disguise purposes. In the case of chameleons, my understanding is that they are not doing this to disguise themselves. They're doing it to signal their intentions. They lied to us, sir. <laughs> I think they did. They did. <laughs> that Bantu education. <laughs>
Exactly. There you go. Thanks for setting that record straight, Chris. Uh, there are still so many. Let's go to uh, Cody in Cosmos. Hello, Cody. Uh, hello, Anna. Um I want to ask Dr. Chris, why does ice stick to your fingers when you're trying to remove it from the, especially ice cube? Ooh, painful. The and put it in blood? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so painful when that happens. Have you ever had happens. it stuck on your tongue? Or your lips. I know someone that kissed that kissed a, a metal a piece of metal and it, and a, or an ice cube or something got it stuck on their lips. Really painful because they just whipped it off and it brought the skin with it. Very very painful. Didn't want to kiss anyone after that. <laughs> the reason it happens, Cody, is because the ice is very cold. Your mucous membranes in your lips and so on, your skin are covered in a, a small amount of moisture. When you look at your skin surface, you'll find it's not completely dry. There are sweat glands in the skin surface that put a small amount of moisture onto the skin surface. Uh, That's partly there to to help you grip and fill things. Lips, you lick your lips, they're damp. When the ice touches that surface, a cold ice cube can cause that small amount of moisture to freeze onto the ice cube, making ice crystals on the tissue surface, which lock the ice cube or the cold thing to that surface because it is literally frozen there and that's why it sticks the the good news is that with small objects that will warm up quite quickly the heat from your tissue will melt the ice quite quickly and then it'll come off so don't do what my friend did and whip it off mm-hmm. because that will definitely end the wrong way yes yeah, painful way next we have gareth calling from the val hi gareth oh hi Azania and the i just want to find out um, my question is about the chicken. Uh, you know, when you slaughter chicken from home, mm-hmm. um, it usually it bones they tend to seem like a yellowish and white, and be much harder mm-hmm. than the ones we buy from the supermarket, in which they seem a little bit brown and softer. And then the meat as well, you have to boil the one you slaughter at home before you fry or roast it. Unlike the ones from the supermarket, you can just put it uh, on the, in the fryer uh, or in a pan and fry it and then it's soft and you can eat it. I just want to understand why is there a difference between the chickens? Um, are they is there a difference at all or why yes. is What yeah. a great observation. And I've also made an observation that the, I don't think eggs are made the way they used to. I got I get eggs now from the supermarket and uh they 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 break in the pot you know they jack and they start so when you're boiling them they're just they're just boiling, not very robust yeah. anymore and I think this is a consequence of the way we're rearing chickens I think we're rearing them on cheap food and not giving them enough grit and calcium in their diet to make their eggs strong or their bones strong animals that are confined to pens they don't have to run around they don't get much exercise As a result, they don't have impact loading of their bones, so their bones don't strengthen very much. So that would account for for why you're saying the bones are soft. And it's really interesting that you've said that. And also, animals that don't take much activity, they tend to have very um, gentle, soft, nice, I say nice, nice to Mm. eat muscle tissue. And this is why when you have veal calves, for example, you keep the cows from moving. You don't want them running around because if they run around and bulk up, then they get stringy, tough muscles and tough tissues, which you don't want to taste as good. I think by keeping the chickens less mobile, they're not getting much exercise, so their muscles are not thickening up and strengthening in the same way. So that would account for why your free-range chicken probably has a very happy life but makes meat that's harder to and tougher to chew up. Um, but also mm-hmm. probably does lay better eggs, I should think, because it's probably got a better diet. Uh, so you'll have better boiled eggs, but slightly tougher chicken thighs. Yes. 
I somehow was thinking about astronauts, you know, when they're up there as well. That's right. You know, muscles, it's exactly the same. Bones can atrophy because yep. there's no gravity and force that they're applying to their movement. As are are as you saying you'd like Earth. to eat an astronaut, Azza? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yum, yum. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't like to try yes, it. Chris. The flavour would be out of this world. Go on, say it. <laughs> Not falling. Thank you, Chris. All right. You take care now. Thanks. That's Dr. Chris Smith. Gareth, thank you for that really cool question. End us off on a funny note. Um, Yeah, they're probably not running around enough or eating right.